longer than our regular service if I don't stop. So, but I want to take just a moment to uh, your right side of your bulletin on the interior. This is our prayer of confession. So I ask that we take just a moment and go through it as we prepare and lead into worship. Oh, Lord, our God, when we stop to consider all the works your hands have made, we realize that we've fallen short. We've neglected the seeing of your greatness, and we go about our days without even thinking you're great. Instead, we're consumed with ourselves, our greatness, the works of our hands. For being self-absorbed, forgive us, Lord. For thinking too highly of ourselves, forgive us. We haven't taken this time to wander through the woods, nor hike the mountains you've surrounded us with. Instead, we've stayed inside, checking text, mindlessly scrolling through Facebook, or letting the TV drone on with news or Netflix. If we've gone outside, it's to get to work or run an errand, not to marvel at your creativity and extravagance. For being too easily entertained, forgive us, Lord. For being too busy to notice your handiwork, forgive us. Father, you spared nothing, not even your son, and he gladly bore the burden of our sin. But we aren't so selfless. We make intricate calculations to get the most bang for our buck, to ensure that if we give something to a neighbor, we get something in return. And when you present us with an opportunity to bear another's burden, we give excuses about self-care and family time and being too introverted. For hoarding the gifts you have given us, forgive us, Lord. For leaving our neighbor to suffer, forgive us. For would you do what it takes to get our attention? Would you give us energy and courage to care for the people you put around us? Make us humble, Lord, so that we bow down with adoration and proclaim, God, how great you are. Amen. So, it has been a year. Hard to believe. It has been a year since I was last before you in this role. Uh, it's about right, though. That's about, that's about all I need. It's about a year. Once a year. Once a year is good for me. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, our challenge a year ago uh, was disciple making, one that, if we remember a path that I had been on for several months, it seemed like God kept talking to me and it kept building and to, uh, and to where we were that Sunday. Little did I know that, and of course this is the way God's worked, but little did I know that at the time that's really where our focus would be into the fall and into this year through our small groups and others into disciple making, which it should be. But that's not where we're at today. Uh, you know, this is part of it, but today we continue through our top seven hymns of the faith. Um, we have had quite a few. This is our sixth week, so we have one more week to go, and Pastor Louise will be leading us next week in that one. Look forward to that. But our top seven. And so I want to make sure that I don't bore you with too much historical fact, but you have to understand me. I love history, uh, especially history about the faith. And so I really thought I could just take the Wikipedia page about our hymn today and just kind of write it all down, just bring it all through, read that, and we'd be good, right? We done. 
Well, I said that to somebody, and they said, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed. So I went back to the drawing board, and so that's where we're at today. And uh, so our hymn today is actually a paraphrase of a Swedish hymn, one that was written by Carl Gustav Bobert. He lived uh, from 1859 to 1940. And the interesting part with this hymn is uh, we're actually getting out of hand-drawn pictures of people, and we have real photographs. And so this is Carl. He was a Swedish poet, an elected official. He was also a carpenter's son. He worked briefly as a sailor and served as lay minister in the Mission Covenant Church of Sweden. He was an editor of a weekly Christian newspaper, Witness of the Truth, and he published more than 60 poems, hymns, and gospel songs, including the hymn that was the inspiration for today. That original hymn was O Stor Gud, or O Great God, written in 1885 with nine verses. The inspiration for the poem came when Boberg was walking home from church and listening to church bells. A sudden storm got his attention, And just as suddenly as it made its appearance, it subsided to a peaceful calm. In his own words, he says, It was that time of year when everything seemed to be in its richest coloring. The birds were singing in trees and everywhere. It was very warm. A thunderstorm appeared on the horizon, and soon there was thunder and lightning. We had to hurry to shelter, but the storm was soon over and the clear sky appeared. When I came home, I opened my window towards the sea. There evidently had been a funeral, and the bells were playing the tune of when eternity's clock calls my saved soul to its Sabbath rest. That evening, I wrote the song, O Great God. The poem became matched to an old Swedish folk tune and sung in public for the first known occasion in 1888. So in 1907... It was translated into German, which doesn't help most of us. It was translated by Baptist nobleman Manfred von Glenn. And then in 1912, it was translated into Russian by Ivan Prokovov. I am not Russian, and (laughs) and my southern English gets in the way. But he was known as the Martin Luther of Russia, and at his time was the most prolific hymn writer in all of Russia. And so finally, our hymn of today was translated into English in the first time in 1925 by E. Gustav Johnson, a professor at North Park College in Illinois. His translation of verses 1, 2, and 79 was published in the United States in the Covenant Hymnal as O Mighty God in 1925. His translation, which I will spare you from hearing me sing, reads as follows. Almighty God, when I behold the wonder of nature's beauty wrought by worlds of thine, and how thou leadest all from realms of yonder, sustaining earthly life with love benign, when I behold the heavens in their vastness, where golden ships in Asia issues forth, where sun and moon keep watch upon the fastness of changing seasons and of time on earth, When crushed by guilt of sin before thee kneeling, I plead for mercy and for grace and peace. I feel thy balm and all my bruises healing. My soul is filled, my heart is set at ease. And when at last the mist of time have vanished, 
I and I in truth my faith confirmed shall see. Upon the shores where earthly ills are banished, I enter, Lord, to dwell in peace with thee. With the refrain, with rapture filled, my soul thy name would laud, O mighty God, O mighty God. So, does anyone know what our hymn is today? How great thou art. There's been a few hints along the way, too. How Great Thou Art was written by British Methodist, Methodist, Stuart, uh, missionary Stuart, Wesley Kine, Hine. Let me say that again. <coughs> Stuart Wesley Hine, who lived from 1899 to just shy of his 90th birthday in 1989. This is Mr. Hine and his wife, Mercy. He was influenced greatly by the teachings of British Baptist evangelist Charles Spurgeon. He first heard the Russian translation of the German version of the song while on an evangelistic mission to the Ukraine in 1931. Upon hearing it, he was inspired to create his English paraphrase known as How Great Thou Art. Hine and his wife Mercy learned the Russian translation and started using it in their evangelistic services. He also started rewriting some of the verses and writing new verses, all in Russian, as events inspired him. He finished his English translation in 1949 and published the final four verses in his own Russian gospel magazine, Grace and Peace, that same year. As Grace and Peace was circulated among refugees in 15 countries around the world, including North and South America, Hines' version of how of O oh Great God, or How Great Thou Art, became popular in each country that it reached. British missionaries began to spread the song around the world to former colonies in Africa and India in approximately its current English version and was sung for the first time in the U.S. in Stony Brook, New York in 1951. J. Edwin Orr of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, introduced it at the Forest Home Christian Conference Center in the summer of 1954. This led to Mana Music purchasing the rights to the song and making the final changes we have today, changing the words, works in mighty, to worlds and rolling in the first verse. But still, it did not come to great recognition in the U.S. until 1957 after an encounter between Hine and the American evangelist, great American evangelist. Do we know who that is? Billy Graham. As the story goes, Hine and the Billy Graham team went to London in 1954. Or actually, the Billy Graham team went to London in 1954. They were given a pamphlet containing Hine's work, and they kind of put it aside. Fortunately, not for long. They worked closely with Hine to prepare the song for use in their campaigns, sang it in the 1955 Toronto-Canada campaign, but it did not really catch on until they took it to Madison Square Garden in 1957. They sang it not once. They sang it not twice. They sang it 100 times. Not because they wanted to, 
but because the people would not let them stop. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, the reason I like how great thou art is because it glorifies God. It turns Christian eyes toward God rather than upon themselves. I use it as often as possible because it is such a God-honoring song. The first major recording of How Great Thou Art was by Bill Carl in 1958, Sacred Records album of the same name. Since that time, and this is quite amazing, this is why I'm such a history person, there have been over 1,700, 1,700 documented recordings of How Great Thou Art. It has been used on major television programs, major motion pictures, and has been named as a favorite gospel song of at least three U.S. presidents. It is also noted by many to be the top gospel song of all time. And so the rest is history, right? Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands hath made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, the power throughout the universe displayed. I'm getting in trouble here. I just want you to know that. She forbade me from singing. So if I am not here next week, you know why. Inspired by Psalm 8, other book that's in your, in front of you, particularly verses 3 and 4. Mark, can you pull the gang down just a little bit, please? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have established, what are human beings that are mindful, that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? So I ask, how often do we really take time in our busy lives to really consider what God has done? Do we listen to the rolling or mighty thunder? Or are we so sensitized by news reports that we hunker down in fear of the storms that are out there? Blinded to the glory God is showing us. And I wonder, do we really see the stars in the universe displayed? Are we so busy we keep our heads down and focus on the trappings of our modern society? And then the question actually came to me, do we even see the stars at all anymore? This is a picture of downtown Nashville. It's a beautiful shot. You wouldn't know that it's the dead of night, though. What do you see? Lights. And maybe one star. And all that brightness that's coming near the buildings is all by our own man-made light. Next slide, Mark. This, however, is in Chile. Say it's one of the last great spots to view the heavens. That is the Milky Way galaxy. And yes, folks, we can see it from our home planet here on Earth. And that is the moon. But we are blinded by a thing called light pollution from everything we create here 
Show the one of uh, the blackout. Yeah, and that's another shot there. This is the United States of America and seen from space. And all those lights are all of our cities, except you see that big black spot in the northeast? That was the blackout of 2003. They said in New York for the first time, even they had battery backups and generators, but, but people went to rooftops and could stargaze and actually see things that they've never seen in their lives from the heavens. And so can you imagine in the days before we had all of our modern conveniences looking up at the heavens and seeing what God has built and provided? No wonder the great theological works that were done in the past. No wonder the great visions of God's glory were seen. But how often do we even take time to look up anymore? When through the woods and forest glades I wander And hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur And hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze Kind of makes you want to go into the refrain, right? So what about today? This 90-degree day, last night we were doing some work here in the gym, had a a dance group here from Sandy Rummage, and the humidity was so high, it went to almost raining in the gym, from the outside air coming in contact with the cool air in the gym, was the high humidity outside. And believe me, I am very thankful for air conditioning, very thankful for it. But what about today? Do we ever go outside to really look at what God has given us? Do we take time in nature to see the things, the gifts, the good gifts he has given us, to really appreciate that? Or is outside just long enough to get from our car to our house so we can stay comfortable, no matter what time of year? One of my favorite things, and I say this, because it was really a thing that I did in the past, because I too have fallen victim of the lack of time, was to hunt, especially deer hunting. Uh, and not for the reasons you may think. It, it really became not so important as to what I brought home as to the experience itself. And the experience part I'm talking about is getting up at 4 a.m., which I really can't recommend, But getting up at 4 a.m. when the world is still dark, going out in the crisp fall air, walking through the woods in the dark and finding your spot, whether it be up in a tree or in a blind or on on a stool by a stump, and just sitting there and watching creation come awake as dawn breaks. It really puts everything into perspective. I have sat in the woods and had deer walk up to me as close as Mike is to me right now and then watch me and I just watch them. Watch squirrels 
bounce from tree to tree first thing in the morning and hears the birds singing. It gives you a perspective to be out in nature of creation. And you don't have to be a hunter. Anybody can do it. You can go find a quiet space on our own greenways, although that's even hard to do nowadays. But to get out and to do those things, to find what God has given us. His magnificent creation will make you wonder about what he has done. So verse 3. I'm not singing yet. This is actually one of the four verses that were written and added by Heinz. And so it was typical of the Heinz to ask if there were any Christians in the villages that they visited. In one case, they found out that the only Christians that their host knew about were a man named Dimitri and his wife, Ludmilla. Dimitri's wife knew how to read, which apparently was uncommon in those times. She had taught herself to read because a Russian soldier had left a Bible behind several years earlier. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. We don't really know the story of this soldier. We can infer whatever we like. My thoughts really are that this soldier was listening to what God was telling him. How many times do we not listen? I want you to think about this and put this together with me. You have this soldier that leaves the Bible, packing up, getting ready to move on. He had an extra, maybe. I'll leave it. We have this lady that takes it and learns how to read. This events led to Hind first coming upon how, oh great God. So let's hear the rest of the story. When the Hinds arrived in the village and approached Dimitri's house, they heard a strange and wonderful sound. Dimitri's wife was reading the Gospel of John about the crucifixion of Christ to a house full of guests. And those visitors were in the very act of repenting. Out loud, repenting. Let's take that away. They were out loud giving and turning, giving what they were turning away from to God. So loud that you could hear them outside the house. Now how often do we take time to give up to out loud say, I'm giving this to you, God, whatever it may be. But this was pretty common practice, according to what I read. And so the Hines heard people calling out to God, saying how unbelievable it was that Christ would die for their sins and praising him for his love and mercy. And, of course, they just couldn't barge in and disrupt this obvious work of the Holy Spirit. So they stayed outside and listened. Stuart wrote down the phrases he heard the repenters use, and it became the third verse that we know today. And when I think 
that God his Son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on that cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin. The gospel story wrapped up in one verse I'm reminded of John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's the verse we all read and we remember. But there's verses that follow. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we're not actually, let's define believe. And actually, no, we don't need to define believe. Let's define what believe in means. To believe in something. The definition from the dictionary of believe in is to have faith in the truth or existence. To be convinced of the existence of. To be sure. And I believe that is the believe in. To be sure of Christ. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jeremy alluded to this a little bit last week. The thing is, you can believe of Jesus all day long. You can go back in the historical fact and record, and there's been plenty of people that have done this that that proves he, he walked the earth. You can say his name all day long. But that doesn't mean it's going to get you anywhere. It is by believing in his name. Faith in his name. That we are saved. That our salvation comes. There are many examples in the Gospels of people being healed by their faith alone in Jesus. By being healed, just by touching his cloak, they had faith that they would be healed. The other part of this is it's never too late. Luke 23, which is a Well, it takes this beautiful, wonderful, awesome cross and turns it into the death of our, the death of our Savior, where he was tortured and died. And it was that death and resurrection that made this cross beautiful and wonderful. 
Luke 23 deals with that more than anything else. And we're starting in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Skipping down to verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has not done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Up to the last moment. Now I can by no means encourage you to wait till the last moment of your dying breath to come to Christ. For a variety of reasons. One, because most of us never know or never have much warning of when that day comes. The other part of that is, well, you lose a lot of life by not acknowledging throughout life what Christ has done for you. You lose a lot of peace. But I wanted to tell you a story. And uh, it's one a little harder, and I've gotten through first service with it, so I'm feeling a little bit better. Uh, and it is about God's faithfulness to us. Uh, my mother, who I'm actually happy to see her up there this morning, um, she is the baby of eight children. She, uh, 1945, and she's one of four remaining now. The story I'm going to tell you happened about 30 years ago when I was a young lad of 16. Um, I said it was a big family, and this is a story actually about one of my uncles. And I'm able to tell you this story because I am witness to the direct effects of this story. The true witnesses were my mother, my grandmother, and her sister, my Aunt Marilyn. And they spent the better part of a year caring for my uncle, my mom's brother, Philip. Philip was a good man, but he lived a hard life. He'd been a roofer by trade. And if you can imagine, roofing's not easy anyways, being up there in the heat. But he would throw a stack of shingles over this shoulder and a stack of shingles over this shoulder, and he would walk straight up the ladder. And he did it for days on end, years on end. He was skin and muscle, muscle upon muscle. The strongest muscle being his heart. He was one that no matter where he went, he was always generous. But like I said, he had lived a rough life. He actually served a prison sentence for murder. It was self-defense, 
but because of extenuating circumstances, he had to serve a short time in prison. So we go to the end of his life. He had been riddled with cancer throughout his body, literally throughout his body. And there was nothing they could do. But his heart wouldn't give up from all those years. Because he literally went from being on a roof one day to being in a hospital bed the next. And all those years, his heart wouldn't give out. And my mom and her sister, my aunt, and my grandmother spent many days near the end of his life going to his home. One, because his wife wouldn't let him stay in the hospital. He endured what no man should endure. The disease was bad enough, but he was beaten in bed many days by his wife. Unfortunately, she was a very cruel person. But my mom and my aunt especially spent, would go, go there every day. I spent most of that year as a latchkey kid taking care of myself. Fortunately, I learned how to drive. So as the days went by, the days went by, and his health deteriorated, and he got to a point where, as we know, when death comes, a lot of times there is no, no speech left at the end at all, and he had not spoken for probably at least a week or more. And so one day my mom and my aunt and my grandmother went to the house, and the hospice lady was there. And they were the only ones there. And my grandmother, being the saint she was, and having to be a saint, knowing my family, uh, and raising eight kids, and my mom will tell you that as a baby, there was never less than 13 people in her house growing up. So they stacked them in like cordwood. But uh, my grandmother, being the saint she was, just sat there like this wringing her hands over and over. And so the hospice worker lady, they told him that, you know, she had actually developed a communication system with my uncle. Hand squeezes. One squeeze, yes. Two squeezes, no. And uh, I wanted to know if I had any questions and they went through and they asked some questions and she asked him and she said, you know, uh, uh, do you know your mother and your sisters are here? And he squeezed yes. He recognized them being there. And asked a few more questions, and there was yeses and noes, and just stuff to really show that he was communicating. And she got to my grandmother. And she said, Miss Pertle, is there anything that you'd like to ask Philip? And she sat there, and she wrung her hands. And she said, I just have to know. I have to know. Is he all right with the Lord? Now, all the kids, my mom's brothers and sisters, they all grew up in church. Until they got old enough, they wouldn't mind, and they did their own thing. But the hospice worker told her, said, 
said, well, I've been, I've been praying with Philip quite a bit over these last weeks. And we've been talking. And she said, well, why don't we just ask him? I remind you, my uncle had not spoken in weeks. So she went in and she asked him, said, you know, Philip, we've talked. And we've been praying about Jesus and, you know, we've, we've talked. And uh, your, your mom here wants to know if, how you are with the Lord. She said, Do you, is it time? Time for us to pray about that and, and for you to, to have faith in the Lord? He squeezed yes. And so they prayed. My uncle, who had not spoken his last words upon this earth were Jesus as he cried out. The only words he spoke that day. The only words he ever spoke again. And they say, my mom being the last living witness to this, will tell you that he glowed from head to toe with the countenance of Christ upon him. Glowed. He died shortly thereafter that day. And it's interesting enough that after I struggled with putting the story in, that I found out that we will be going out to Harpeth Hills today, and that's where he's buried. And then verse 4. I just want to reiterate something. Don't wait to the last minute. But God will pursue you to that very last minute. To that very last minute. But there's so much with him before. Verse 4. It's another one that was written by Heinz. It was actually added after World War II when Heinz was ministering to refugees in Britain. And the story goes like this. One man to whom they were ministering to told them an amazing story. He had been separated from his wife at the very end of the war and had not seen her since. At the time they were separated, his wife was a Christian, but, was, but he was not. But he had since been converted. His deep desire was to find his wife so that they could last at last share their faith together. But he told the Hines that he did not think he would ever see his wife on earth again. Instead, he was longing for the days when they would meet in heaven and could share the, in the life eternal there. These words again inspired Hines, and they became the basis for his fourth and final verse of How Great Thou Art. When Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation to take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then we shall bow in a humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Are you ready?
Reverend Rick spoke recently. Are you at peace with all things? We know the ending. We have had this book for a very, very long time. Right here, very back of it. Well, depends on which one you read, but the, the, the very last actual chapter of the book. We know the ending. God wins. It's already done. But are you at peace? It is understandable to not want to die, to not want to leave family, to not want to leave your friends, the things you love. But as Christians, as Christians, as Easter people, as people post and of the resurrection, we should have above all else peace in everything, no matter the circumstances, no matter what life puts at us. Because our peace does not come from things, it comes from him who died and rose again for us. That is the peace that goes beyond all understanding. To know that in all things, no matter your situation, you can have peace in here while everything else is falling down around you. And it only comes from Christ. And so I'll leave you with this. Part you've been waiting on. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Does your soul sing? Or are you needing revival? Do you need to repent? To turn away from whatever it is that's keeping you in bondage? Is it your fear? Your lack of trust? Whatever it may be. There is freedom in the name of Jesus if you only believe in him. Hear these words, 3, 19 and 20. This is the verdict. Life, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Remember these words that came before. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. The device that was used for so many years to put fear into people has now become the place that we lay down our fears. As we come this morning, we're doing something a little different. I said it's prerogative when the pastor's away. As we come this morning, we're going to share in Holy Communion. And I want you to remember this, the words of Wesley. He would remind us that in communion, 
we may come face to face with Christ. Amen. Let me take you to that day. Actually, the week before. Think about what was going on as Jesus came into Jerusalem. That triumphal entry when everything was absolutely confusing and distracting for everybody that was there. He called his disciples to be with him, and they were distracted by so many things. How many times do we get distracted by so many things? He gathered them up in an upper room, and hoping that he would be able to celebrate that Seder, that Passover meal with them. When he arrived, he saw that they were fighting among each other about who was going to be the greatest, who was going to sit at the seat of honor. You see, the distractions had taken their focus away from that which was going on to celebrate God's provisions. So he showed them in love what it meant to be the servant, the greatest. And he told them to be a servant. And then the Bible tells us that they gathered around and they did that that meal. That, That holy meal that Jews for many years had come together to celebrate. But the Bible says that when Jesus took the bread, he changed the narrative for eternity, actually. Because instead of saying what he would have said, the Bible said that Jesus gave thanks. Blessed are you, O God of the universe, who brings forth the grains of the field. He broke the bread. He gave it to his friends. And he said, take, eat. This is my body which will be given for you. Supper continued. And then it came time for him to take the cup. once again, he changed the narrative. The Bible says Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks. Blessed are you, O God of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. He gave it to his friends and he said, take and drink all of this. And as you do, Do it in remembrance of me. I love you. And this is the proof. Today, as we partake of this this holy meal, we are reminded, as Davis said, that our founder, John Wesley, said that Communion is a a means of grace. It is a means of of coming face to face with the actual message that God loves you and that God will save you. I never presume that I am in a place where everybody's soul is good with God. But I will tell you that John Wesley and in the United Methodist Church, we celebrate an open table. 
no strings attached. We invite you to come and experience God's love. But today, maybe in that experiencing of God's love through this meal, God is calling you to maybe offer something to Him. To to repent, to give God that thing which is holding you. So this communion rail, this chancel rail, this altar, whatever words you want to use for this area will be available. And there will be someone who would be willing to pray with you if you would like. Sometimes we get distracted, I think. And communion, we come and we take the bread and we take the the cup and dip the bread into the cup and then we go back to our seats and the whole time God's saying, I want you to talk to me for a minute. May this day be the day that you listen and take a few moments. And if you don't believe, may this be the day that you say yes. I'd ask those who are serving if you would come. Pour out your Holy Spirit, O God, upon these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with you, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at the table the banquet that he will prepare. All honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen.
God, you continue to pour out your love to us. May we, through receiving this meal, draw closer to you, but be empowered by you to go out into the world and share your love so that others might know your love for them and believe. In Christ's name we pray. Please stand and sing as our dulcimer group leads us out today. We will do all verses.
leave here. I just want to thank the, the Dulcimer group one more time for, for them gracing us with their presence and using their God-given gifts. Thank you. Thank you. We, we appreciate every time you join us. Uh, and also to the praise band for coming in, staying two services today. So uh, that's it. Go forth. Proclaim the gospel. Live what you believe. Proclaim it to the nations. Amen and amen.